Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode has been brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th of 2022 in Verona, Italy. This year will be an exclusively in-person edition. The main theme of the event will be all-round wine communication and tickets are on sale now. The second early bird discount will be available until September 18th. For more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. Thanks for tuning in to Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Steve Ray, your host, and this podcast features interviews with the people actually making a difference in the Italian wine market in America, their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. And I'll be adding a practical focus to the conversation based on my 30 years in the business. So if you're interested in not just learning how, but also how else, then this pod is for you. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm Steve Ray, your host, and my guest this week is Max Desirobe of Avignonese. Max, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me there. It's a pleasure. The name is very familiar uh, to me for a couple of reasons, but I'm, I'm sure for a lot of my listeners, Avignonese is, maybe they're not familiar with it. Can you give us a little background of the company and you know, we're going to get into a lot of conversations on some subjects, but give us some, a kind of a, a point of reference on the company. Yeah, I mean, Avignon is, the, uh, you know, it's, a, it's actually a very old family from Tuscany. Um, and they were producing wine here for, for ages in Montepulciano. And in the 70s, early 70s, I think in 74, uh, it became really um, an enterprise in a company. It was kind of family business originally, and then it was actually run by the in-laws of the Avignonese family. And it became very famous for two reasons. Uh, first of all, the Vincento, because I think the Vincento from Avignonese is, uh, is known all over the world. Even the French uh, consider that as a great uh, sweet wine. And also, of course, uh, because of the Nobile, which, you know, the Vino Nobile is the, the workhorse of Montepulciano and of Avignonese. So that's, in, in a few words, the history. Now to understand what I'm doing there is just that my wife bought the winery uh, in 2009. She was a silent partner before, but in 2009, she, she took over all the shares. And since May 2009, we, uh, we are at the helm of Avignonese. To give you an idea, Avignonese has about 440 acres of vineyard planted and our production uh, in terms of bottles um, branded Avignonese is around 400 to 600,000 bottles according to, to, the, to the vintage. But a large quantity of our production is actually sold in bulk. Oh, really? I didn't. About 40%, yes. And how much is exported to the U.S.? U.S. is our number one market uh, in every aspect. Uh, first of all, because as such, I mean, a, a large amount of our wine is, is exported. I think 75% of our production is exported. And the uh, United States are number one there in terms of country. I'm taking about... I would say a big chunk, about 30%. And then we have to take into consideration that whatever we sell in Italy is actually bought by Americans. And uh, we got the evidence of that uh, because of COVID, 
because when the Americans disappeared for the peninsula, our sales in Italy dropped by 75%. Wow, wow. So that gives you an idea how important is the American market for us, because even our domestic market is driven by Americans. That's the first time I've heard anybody say anything like that, but that's a, a good piece of data. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, this has been, I mean, this is something which I've been saying since day one, uh, but nobody believed me. And unfortunately, when COVID came, we had to realize that, you know, uh, I was right. Uh, to, <laughs> unfortunately, I would say. But it, it is clear that, uh, you know, either we sell wine here at the winery, uh, you know, ex-seller, you know, at the door, or we sell to the restaurants. But the restaurants, they sell to the American tourists because Italian Italian people will drink vino nobile in Tuscany. But the fact that we sell some vino nobile in Naples or in Rome or whatever demonstrate that actually, uh, you know, this is not local people drinking that. Otherwise, they would drink the local wine. So it's America who is our number one market domestically and internationally. And who's your uh, importer in the U.S.? We are our own importers. Uh, we do that ourselves. Uh, since already 11 years. Uh, so we, we, we jump one. So it's Avignonese USA? or What's the name of the company? Uh, Avignonese USA. Okay. And do you have people resident in the U.S.? Four and a half people working full-time for us, yes. Yeah, we, 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 we jump one, one of the three tiers. So we talk directly to uh, the distributors. Uh, we distributed in you know, 39 estates. And the most important ones. And are you aligned with any uh, one or few uh, particular distribution companies? One of one of our big distributors, Winebow Distribution. Yes, definitely, it's number one for us. They 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 represent sixty five percent of our distribution in the states, which is not bad. It's a big charm. Great company. I've been familiar with the portfolio and their Italian wines and and their. Uh, they were big in uh, Austrian wines, too. I had a lot of experience working there. So uh, yeah, good to hear that. Okay, so you mentioned Montepulciano. Um, I'm, I'm just going to open the door because I think uh, uh, you're used to answering this question. What is the difference between Vino Noble de Montepulciano and uh, other Sangiovese Chianti from Tuscany? Yeah, I mean... Talk Sangiovese, it's, it's a difficult question because, um, let's put it that way, uh, I, I'm not convinced that the uh, DOCGs, the way they are conceived in Italy, it's something which is perceived clearly by the Americans. Um, as you probably know, they are a copy of what was created by the French in 1855, but it happened 125 years later in Italy, and something was lost in translation. So uh, when you talk about Sangiovese, Sangiovese is so um, biotope sensitive by its own characteristics that trying to frame it into a denomination is a bit of a nonsense because the, the Sangiovese from that row and the Sangiovese from this row are completely different, even if they are three feet apart. This is something that you know, has to be taken into consideration. So what we have to consider when we talk about Sangiovese is Tuscany in general, as a whole. Because nowhere else on earth they have been able to produce a great Sangiovese. This is the only place you can find fantastic Cabernet Sauvignon all over the planet, including Tuscany. We've been able to copy wines from others. But the paradox is this, no one can copy what we do. 
because it's impossible to grow Sangiovese outside of central Italy. Actually, if you tell me, let's say there are some areas, some areas in Umbria where they have a fantastic Sangiovese, uh, the locals will answer, yes, but this territory you're talking about used to be Tuscany 200 years ago. So this is it. <laughs> okay. Well, let me ask a, interrupt and ask a question here. It, it, is there a parallel to any other variety in any other country to um, Sangiovese being so definitive? And I would think Grunewaldliner, as an example, would be for Austria. It is grown in other places. Blafrankisch, too. They're growing Lemberger in upstate New York. Yeah. This is another one. I, I would agree with you. It's, let's be honest. I think that the, the Sangiovese, all the trials that have been done around the world, and, and, and more specifically in America, and particularly in, in California, were a flop. And uh, it never came out the way. Because, I mean, let's put it that way. Sangiovese plays at home here. The homeland of Sangiovese is Tuscany. So trying to frame something which is so biotope-sensitive into um, uh, kind of DOCGs, uh, that are very often actually limited to uh, um, administrative divisions, like a town, which ignore completely or disregards pedology or climate, um, is a bit of a nonsense. So I think that if I have to explain to the uh, consumers what is the Sangiovese, I think they have to look at it from a kind of broad way, in a kind of take a certain distance, a certain perspective, and look at it from a wine from Tuscany with its diversities, clearly. I mean, you know, uh, you were talking about Chianti. Chianti has a higher elevation, so the climate is, is colder. The wines will have a general characteristics, more, more acidity than the, the Nobile. The Brunello will be closer to the sea and uh, will have, a, a, I would say, a more temperate climate and, and therefore give give wines with probably a heavier body and but this is a caricature of course huh? and um, and Montepulciano is a little bit more continental a bit further away from from the sea and therefore it's a kind of in between light body and and a bit of acidity uh, voila but again this is a caricature because I mean we, we, we you could find fantastic wines here or there that are in denominations like Montecuco or Morellino di Scansano which are fantastic. It has nothing to do. As long as it comes from Tuscany, it's good. Okay, but let's cut to the chase. There's some confusion in the world, and I think you've done a really good job in the, the pieces I've seen of explaining it, confusion between uh, what Montepulciano, uh, Vino Noble de Montepulciano is compared to Chianti and why Brunello has become this worldwide, and certainly in the U.S., a, a, a sensation, higher-priced wine, all that kind of stuff, and that has not happened to Vino Noble. And there's some con contradictions in the name, the name of the town, so maybe you can kind of give us that perspective. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I used to say as a, as a kind of joke that we are, we are squeezed between the, the, the rock and the hard place. Uh, the rock is, is, is uh, Brunello, because it's famous in the United States for plenty of reasons, because the Mariani family played an important role in distributing it in the United States, specifically during the period of the Lira, which was, of course, a fantastic and easy job, because your costs were in a kind of, you know, monkey money, and your income was in monkey solid dollars. Money. So, of course, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but uh, that was monkey money, you know that. That was peanuts. I mean, you know, so basically it was, it, it was a very very easy thing to do, and the, 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 
they took the momentum and they did it very well. And, you know, I can only but, but pay tribute to this fantastic job they've done there. Um, but it would be impossible to repeat that with the euro. Well, and especially now with the euro at parity, I haven't looked at what it was this week, but last week it did. It's about parity, yes, indeed. So forget it. I mean, you know, this is possible when you know that, you know, from, um, from Monday to Friday, uh, the value of the lira has dropped by 10 or 15% compared to the dollar in less than a week, then, then it's an easy game. So that's the first problem we have. This is the this is the rock. And the hard place is the fact that Montepulciano has a namesake, which is Montepulciano d'Abruzzo. But Montepulciano d'Abruzzo has nothing to do with the town Montepulciano where I'm speaking from. Abruzzo, it's a, it's a province which is in central uh, East Italy and that produces a wine on its own and the name of the grape is Montepulciano d'Abruzzo. So you may find Montepulciano d'Abruzzo produced in Australia, New Zealand, um, Argentina, everywhere, because that's the name of the grape. Um, but from Montepulciano town, there is only one wine. is the wine from Montepulciano, which is the Nobile or the Rosso, or ultimately the, the, the Vincento. But I mean, the fact that, of course, they have the same name and they sound identical is confusing people. Uh, and particularly the consumers. I think professionals in America are able to tell the difference. It's no problem. But I put myself in the shoes of a consumer who is facing a, a shelf in a, a you know in a wine shop or in in supermarket and sees next to each other a bottle at six dollars and a bottle at thirty dollars with the same name on on it. So they are a bit puzzled. They say, why is there? Such a big difference between two wines that are supposed to be the same, but they are not the same at all. They are completely different. So Montepulciano town has been trying to obtain from European, uh, I would say, authorities, uh, the fact that they would be recognized as the only one able to use the name Montepulciano, but we failed completely. We failed completely because we were not supported by the Italians' uh, politics. Because, of course, Montepulciano is a small town with 18,000 people living there, probably 15,000 voters. And Abruzzo is a province with 2.2 million people living there. And, of course, has, carries much more weight politically than we do. So we've been a little bit abandoned there. Let's be honest, Abruzzo has been really victim of many earthquakes in the past. And this is an area which really needed some support from the government. So it was difficult to to crucify them. So when you put everything together, we realized that it was a lost cause. So the only thing we could do is um, talk to the American consumers through people like you to explain that they should be able to discriminate uh, one small town that pr which produces about 10 million bottles of Nobile per year and, you know, that ages for three years and so on and so on with, a, I would say, a rather strict uh, uh, rules and uh, the uh, 120 million bottles per year. So we, we're talking about two different things. And then the, we're not playing in the same uh, in the same league because, of course, you know, they, they can sell wine at seven or eight dollars. We cannot. This is our production cost. So that's where I think it's important for, for the consumer to, to, to discriminate one and the other. It's important. But, you know, I mean, the same thing. I mean, uh, as an example, I remember uh, I was at a restaurant next to, to, to the winery, a friend of mine, and there were some American guys there. And the owner of the restaurant who spoke uh, a few words in English was asking them, where are you from? 
And they say, Washington. Oh, yeah. He says, then have you seen the president? And they say, no, no, we are in Washington. <laughs> so the same thing applies in America. It's just a matter of explaining that to people. And the same way that, you know, Italians made no difference between Washington and D.C., the same way probably American consumers make a confusion between two namesake wines that are completely different and come from different areas. Okay, so one of the areas of being different is the word nobile in there. Can you explain the history of that? Yeah, nobile is actually a wonderful word. So uh, we wanted to name the wine nobile, period. But it happens that it's an, it's an adjective. And according to European rules... You cannot, you cannot use an adjective to name a wine, because otherwise, we'll, otherwise people will use the word prestigious or wonderful or whatever. So we, we had to attach vino nobile di Montepulciano altogether to be able to maintain the word nobile as registered, as a trademark in the European community. So that's why it's so long, so unpronounceable. But in reality, the true name that the Italians would use is Vino Nobile, but Vino doesn't add anything to the story because we know it's wine. Otherwise, uh, you know, it's just enough to see the bottle. But the word is Nobile. And Nobile means noble, and, uh, which is actually a very positive uh, word. And why does it, is it called Nobile? Because actually that was the wine that was sold to the aristocracy uh, during centuries since, I would say, the Renaissance until the uh, beginning of the 20th century, European aristocracy in general, and even great names of uh, wine lovers in America, like uh, Jefferson, would, would drink Nobile. That's what they would prefer as European wine after the French or together with the French. Actually, the perfect example is when you talk about Voltaire as a French writer, talking about Candide coming back from the El Dorado, Loaded with money. What do you what do you think he drinks? He drinks no Lafitte Rochild. He drinks Vino Nobile. You know, that's that's what the way it was perceived in the eighteenth century. Even the French would consider the Nobile as being top wine in Europe. Unfortunately, you know, time has passes has passed and uh, you know the Brunello has taken the lead and we we were among the three first DOCGs of Italy. Uh, together with Barolo and Brunello, and we seem to have slipped into a kind of shadow, or we have been overshadowed by our neighbors. But still, the terroir is there. Still, the climate is there. And, you know, this is actually... Montepulciano is certainly the mother of all Tuscan fine wines, historically. And it's the cradle of uh, of the Sangiovese. And yet... When I think about from from an American um, perspective, Monte uh, Vino Noble di Montepulciano, on one hand, and Brunello di Montalcino, are no harder or easier to pronounce one than the other, and yet there's this tremendous awareness of Brunello, and it's in a very similar situation. What is the region that produces or the area that produces or the producers who represent, including you guys, um, the dominant visible brands of Vino Noble in the United States. What are you guys doing to change the perception or to educate American consumers of these facts? We, we create, I mean, we have, a, of course, an institution, which is the consortium. 
but that's, it's, it's it's rather weak and disorganized. Um, recently, it has improved a lot, but during the last 20 years, it's been extremely silent and inefficient. Uh, therefore, that's why we've been overshadowed by our neighbors, because we didn't have anybody there that could speak English which I think it's important when, you know, a large amount, if not most of what we produce is exported to the United States. Um, so that, we, you know, we, we had a lack of competence, clearly. Um, but the institutions are being renovated. There is a new president, which, you know, has given a new impulse. And then there's some efforts which have been made and which I think are very positive. So I, I'm, I'm still, it's an institution. It's not a private entity. So it, you know, it's always slow. Uh, it's something which, you know, will will we'll evolve, but it's not a rocket. Uh, then we created a, a, a little group uh, where we have five uh, producers, which we consider being, you know, good friends. And we do events together. And, uh, you know, that it's Poscarelli, Poliziano, uh, Salcheto, Antinori, and Avignonesi. Uh, I would say all these names are, are well known in the American market because we are everywhere there. And, um, and we try as much as we can to promote the denomination. And, and, and I think that to some extent, this is probably an easier way to act because, uh, you know, it's a lighter structure. And we do small events. We did a couple of events in the past in the, in the United States, uh, another one in Milan. Uh, but of course, we should do more. And um, yeah, we're working on it, definitely. I mean, this I think these are the two entities that, two groups that are working for the denomination. And then, of course, each producer individually does his job to, to promote the, uh, the denomination. Yes, definitely. So as a parallel to that, I think of, I think of Amarone and the historic families or the 13 historic families? The, the relationship between the alliance and the consortium are completely pacified. There is no conflict at all between, between the two of them. Actually, the consortium has uh, uh, entrusted me, uh, uh, being the, the leader of the alliance, to do the communication with the United States. So they, they, they realize that there are some synergies and it's easier for the consortium to use the alliance sometimes to, to, to penetrate the American market because they do things, but you know they, they rely on public funds. And relying on public funds in Italy, it's always a very bureaucratic and complex matter. So they, they, their action is always somehow hindered by this kind of bureaucracy, and they need something lighter. So, you know, we are in charge of that for the denomination. So it's a kind, we, we don't have these kind of discussions of who's, uh, who's the boss of the communication at all. Uh, there is a perfect understanding that, you know, we're sharing the same objective. So you've got some super powerful brands there, yours and Antonori, just to name two uh, th that you mentioned, that have visibility, recognition, clout, credibility, legacy, heritage, authenticity, all that kind of stuff. So whatever has happened in the past hasn't gotten you where you need to be. And now we're in an environment, call it post-COVID, I think it's going to be post during COVID, because it's not going away, where we're, we're seeing a transition to new audiences, 
the audience that in the past you guys have been trying to communicate to was my generation of baby boomers. And the reality is, yeah, we still represent the largest consumption of fine wine in the U.S., but we're also dying off. And that's the reality. You have two new generations, millennials and Gen Z coming, who don't have any of the baggage that my generation has, who may have recently discovered for themselves things like Brunello and that Vino Nobile di Montepulciano can fall into the same category of discovery. How are you reaching this new audience? And as a part of that question, I would ask, what are the tools you're using? In particular, I'm thinking about social media because that's where this audience uh, communicates and touches wine. Yeah, I mean, definitely we use social media and we use it a lot. Listening in, uh, Marina that is a young lady who works for us as an intern, is 24. She's in charge of this communication under the supervision of Xiao and myself. But who is on the front line is every year a young lady in, that, in her 20s that comes as an intern and that we renew every, every year. So we, we always keep somebody talking to the social media that is in its 20s. And I think it's very important because they feel the mood. They actually watch TikTok. They know exactly what is fashionable. They know what's the music to put as a background. You know, of course, the, the message is something which is issued by the management, of course. But uh, the expression has to be performed by somebody young and, and, and pleasant that make people dream. I know this morning, for instance, uh, Marina showed me a little video that she shot with uh, other of our young trainees, they had a picnic in the vineyard uh, at the sunset uh, yesterday, and they, they, they shot a little reel or a little TikTok video, which she wanted to post, and I said, this is exactly what we want. This is, it's people dream about Tuscany. Absolutely. Those are the pictures that work in the wine magazines, and everybody wants to, oh, I want to have that dinner in the vineyard. I don't know how they get the food to them hot, but still in all, it's beautiful, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, and you know, and when you see four young ladies, you know, uh, they're enjoying life, having a glass of wine and, and a picnic, that's that's exactly what we do. Whether it works, uh, hopefully, yes, but you never know because, I mean, social media is like throwing a bottle in the sea. You never know who's going to pick it up. I would argue that point, And I think that's one of the, uh, frankly, I don't mean this to be insulting, but a fundamental problems that our generation, if I can include you in mind, a baby boomer, um, doesn't recognize. There's a million metrics. Yes, please. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm going to. I'm 65, so I'm probably you. Know, I'm probably older than you are. <laughs> You're not. Anyway, anyway. So my philosophy on marketing to people like that is, instead of getting them to come to you, go where they're already gathered. So there is a, a very large uh, wine community around sites and tools like Vivino, like VinePair, like Wine Searcher when they're trying to, to gather information. And a lot of these entities are now populating content that effectively is evergreen because once it's up, it stays there. And the big issue that I have and have done audits of this, I'll share a quote with you. Mike Osborne, who's the guy who runs or owns, uh, runs wine.com, says only 5% of the wines sold on wine.com are what I would call optimized, meaning they have high resolution images, they have the logo in 
black and white and white on black in color, various aspect ratios and resolutions and AI and EPS and all those kinds of things. Because if anybody is going to be doing anything to promote your brand or the area or the type of wine, they need to have access to assets. Okay. So having an optimized set of assets is probably the most important tool. I know I'm shouting on a promontory here and I tell this to people all the time. It doesn't cost much money at all. Um, it's something your uh, intern and internal staff can do. It's evergreen in terms of value, but it's not something that everybody does. Now, I haven't done an audit of the category of Vino Nobile producers. I have looked at yours, though, and you're, you're in pretty good shape. But I think the, the group needs to work on something like that. And that could be something that the consortio could do because it fits within their remit, doesn't benefit one winery versus another, but it basically it fills the advertising component of what OCM or EU uh, agricultural funded money is. Is that anything you guys are working on? Are you aware of that? Is that a priority for you? I mean, this is definitely something that I'm going to bring to uh, to the next meeting of uh, of the alliance because I think I think it's important that we do it. Um, I think it, we will talk to the consortium about it, but it's going to be a, a slower process. Um, now, we went through the exercise. Xiao, as you know, is in charge of that. She's, you know, adamant <laughs> to have things done properly. We've seen all the wine searcher and so forth. Everything has been cleaned up, has been trimmed. Uh, you know, there, there, there's a consistency between the message in one and the message on the other, even if they are slightly different because they they address different different kind of people. But yeah, we 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 are very very uh, I would say curating this aspect of communication, and uh, and Xiao has been doing an admirable job there. I have to say, she's the one who's been cleaning that completely because it was a mess. Let's be honest. I mean, you know, when you produce wine. You 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 so much focused on what you do that sometimes you you neglect the most important thing is to communicate what you do to the people who are supposed to buy it, and then and you know you invest so much effort and so much money in production that sometimes um, you know you 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 forget the most important thing is that you need to find somebody to buy your wine because otherwise you're not going to drink it on your own. So you have to you have to communicate. I saw a great quote this morning um, in the news. I forget who it was, but they, oh, it was somebody from Chile. And they said, making great wine is easy. Selling wine is hard. And you're right. So what is the, what are you guys doing with the American trade who are really the middle middlemen between your communications and consumers to some degree to educate them, whether it's staff at, wine and spirit shops, whether it's Psalms is kind of a cat. It's, it's an interesting challenge now post COVID because a lot of people lost their jobs and that role has changed a lot, but on-premise obviously is very important for you guys. What are you doing to impact the trade? Now I'm not talking consumers now, but the trade who has to tell this story to their customers who are your ultimate buyer. We, we are a little bit peculiar in the sense that we are only importers, right? So, But we don't spend money in ads on when I advocate or wine spectator. We are too small anyway, so we wouldn't carry enough weight to, to be attractive there. What we've decided to do is to create a team, um, which, you know, it's four and a half people working for us. Uh, two are based in, in, uh, in New York. One is in Florida, another one in California. 
and a half-time guy working for us in Texas. Um, and these guys, what do they do? They go along with the sales reps. They actually teach the sales reps. They explain what we are to the sales reps. And with the sales reps, they go and visit the customers. And then they talk about what we do. And, you know, they, they have the wine tasted and so on with an explanation. Bear in mind, you're a sales rep. You are, I don't know, 35 or 45. Uh, you got a book in, in your hand with something like 12, 1200 SKU. How long can you talk about it? To a guy who is in a restaurant and, you know, as people queuing in front of his door to actually push wine that he doesn't want to buy. So you, you need to find someone who is a kind of support for the sales rep that it reminds to the guy uh, that he has a product that is I'm talking about a Vignonese, which is, you know, certified uh, organic, certified biodynamic, vegan, which, you know, uh, it's a state bottle because, of course, every single wine we produce is produced exclusively with our own grapes and so on and so on at a price that when you compare to other equivalent Tuscan Sangiovese is a third of what you would pay a Brunello. That's basically what, what we do on a daily basis. And what we've seen is that, you know, our sales have been growing steadily, COVID, no COVID, throughout the years, nonstop. But we can see that the amount of sales we made in the, in, in the United States, and we see that growing, that figures, uh, a turnover growing year after year. And during the COVID, these guys that we have on the spot have been able actually to shift the action from the uh, on-trade to the uh, off-trade in, in, in no time. Because, of course, the demand was there. You see, the, the, the main difference we've observed between United States and China regarding COVID, is that the day China was hit by COVID, everything stops. Because Chinese would drink wine on banquets or occasions or gatherings or whatever, but they will never actually buy a bottle of wine and drinking watching the equivalent of Netflix. That would never happen. So the market collapsed. In America, there, there's this habit to drink wine. You come from the office, you're tired, you want to enjoy yourself at a nice dinner with your wife. You just grab a bottle. And if you don't go to the restaurant, you do a curbside pickup and you bring the bottle at home and you drink it there. And actually, the demand didn't budge, actually grew. And we've been selling much more than what we would have expected during the COVID, but on a completely different channel. As if the river had moved into another place, but the flow was remaining the same. Yeah, that's my point. Right. Where, where the, the, the industry is different, the customers are different, the way it's purchased, it's different, where it's purchased and consumed are different than what they were before. Um, and with everything changing, you have to change some of the, the, the things that you do. Let me ask you a question. Are you familiar with an entity or two entities? Now they're the same entity, but uh, 750? Is one and the other is Provi? Yeah, we work with them. Now it's Provi, of course. We've been one of the first ones to actually join Provi. Uh, the very first one, to be honest. Um, yes, we, we work with these guys. This is very important for the American market because this is a platform that I would say most of the professionals are using today. And they will, in my opinion, they will use it more and more. That simplifies their life, makes it easier that digitalized part of the work which was done, I would say, uh, you know, with this usual trolley and the six bottles in it, which is a little bit old-fashioned. 
And um, I've done that, you know. I've run, I, I've run this business personally myself because uh, when I go to the state, I do, I do the job with, with my staff because I want to understand how it works. Um, yeah, you know, you you have to do everything from the soil to uh, to the customer. You've got to to see the journey. And what I understand is that there is a change thanks to these uh, kind of new platforms. And uh, we we. Basically, I, I remember when I traded with the young lady who was in charge of the ads in, in, in Provi, uh, we were among probably the first people to actually call them and say, we want to, we want to work with you guys in this new platform. Excellent. Good, good. Well, I, I ask it was a leading question because I, I feel strongly that that's a kind of point, an inflection point where you can influence a whole lot of people very efficiently. You know, it, it was the reason why we, in my former agency, we were one of the largest uh, trade advertisers and Bev Media was so important because everybody used the beverage books. Well, that now has become 750 and now Provi has bought 750 and there are other uh, tools and services that get added to it. But in all cases, you're dealing with the people who make the decisions at the point of time when they're doing the buying and the parallel to that is label recognition technology on Wine Searcher and also on Vivino, so that when somebody scans a bottle of wine and they're physically in the store, you know two things. One, they're interested in it, and two, they can actually buy it at that point in time, generally speaking. Those are powerful opportunities that I don't see people really taking advantage of. It's wonderful to hear that you're uh, working with Provi. I see them doing some wonderful things. In fact, I'm going to be in interviewing uh, the Taylor Katz, the president, in an upcoming event. All right. Let me kind of bring this to a close. Um, Vino Noble de Montepulciano is one of my favorite wines. Um, I know personally it, it's a challenge to explain it to people, and, and I know it about as well as <laughs> most journalists do who aren't, you know, psalms and, and things like that. You guys are doing a bunch of stuff, which is great leading the pack of what we talked about. What is the one thing the trade and recognize most of the listeners to this show are the trade. What is the one thing the trade can put to use immediately to help with your mission to grow the category of Vino Noble de Montepulciano forward? That's actually um, a difficult one. You know, shift paradigm. I think that the, the American professionals should actually shift paradigm. They should start there is a misperception about the Vino Nobile. It's, it's, it's actually quite funny. You know, you sent me this little document where you said the questions that were to be asked and so on. And I read, you know, you're talking about the, uh, the different rules of the, the Nobile. And the American would say there is a minimum of 70% of Sangiovese in the Nobile, right? We don't say that here. We say there is a faculty to blend up to 30% of another grape variety in the Nobile. And this is where, you know, the misunderstanding is. We don't need to put Merlot in the Sangiovese. We don't need to put Cabernet Sauvignon. We don't need to put anything else. We could put Canaiolo if we want because it's, it's, a, it's a local thing. Or we can put Mamolo, which is quite interesting because it's another, I would say, autochthonous grape. But of course, the king of Tuscany is Sangiovese. 
So if you produce a good Sangiovese in Montepulciano, why would you blend it with something else? So I think what is important is to see that if actually we produce 100% Sangiovese in Montepulciano, why is it that one acre of Montalcino cost 10 times more than one acre of Montepulciano? I think that's an existential question for you. <laughs> no, it is not an existential question for me. Absolutely not. And, and again, this is, this is just the opposite. Because when you are in the trade, what are you interested in buying? Something when you realize that you buy it at a cheaper price that is net asset value. Otherwise, you're not a buyer. You're a seller. All right? And what I see is that the American trade is buying what they should sell, and they don't buy what they should buy. Wow. Can you explain that another way? This is very interesting. I, I, what, what I'm trying to say, I'm a trader, right, by, by nature, all right? I'm, I was not born in a wine business. Right. You came from shipping, I believe, right? Yeah, exactly. We're shipping freight. You know, we, we, we're trading freight. So there's a price you buy and the price you sell. So when you have a commodity, which is the Toscan Sangiovese, why would you pay three times the price what you can get for a third? It's a nonsense. So people say, yeah, you say that. I mean, you know, this is a typical reply. Yeah, but because you're the victim, you have been overshadowed. No, the victim is the poor guy who pays three times the price what he could pay a third. He's the victim. The American consumer you're talking. He doesn't know it, but I do know. And I can prove it. Yeah. yeah consumers and the professional. Because there is a margin to make. And of course, you know, you, you realize that the, the, there is a price ratio between two products that are comparable. And again, I mean, nothing against Brunello because I drink a lot of it. I mean, Stella di Campelto is for me probably the best Sangiovese you can find in the world. All right. So it's not even, yeah, I live in Montalcino, actually, and I work in Montepulciano. So I, I, I'm a keen Brunello drinker. But I do realize that if I to invest money today, what do I buy? <laughs> Clearly, I buy Montalcino. No, I buy Montepulciano. Because then there is a possibility that actually the spread between the two narrows. And that's what we're betting on. Any trader would bet on a narrowing trade, between a narrowing spread between Brunello and Nobile. Hmm, okay, I get it. All right. We could talk for hours, um, and actually, I think we did the last time. <laughs> but uh, my guest this week is Max Desarobe, who is uh, the principal, along with uh, his wife, Virginie Savaris, of uh, Avignonese Winery. And uh, we've been talking about uh, Vino Nobile di Montepulciano this, this week. Max, thank you very much for being on the show. I appreciate your sharing the time. No, I mean, I should be the one thanking you for giving me this opportunity. It was really a great time. And thank you so much for your interest in Avignonese. Well, you're welcome. I, let me answer my own question about what's the big takeaway? That everybody should be selling Vino Nobile di Montepulciano, not against uh, Brunello or not against any Chiantis, but simply before because it's a good deal and the, the sellers, uh, restaurants as well as the um, retail stores, can make more money doing so. You're right. Let me add just one thing. Everybody tells you should never compare your wine with your neighbors. 
because you should actually promote its intrinsic qualities. Wrong. Because the whole profession does comparison. The simple fact that you have a score means that it's a competition. So this is, in my opinion, this is also something which has to change. Everybody I talk to regarding the nobile, one way or another, explicitly, implicitly, refers to the two other wines from Tuscany that are based on Sangiovese. It has never happened to me that I had a conversation with a journalist, with a trader, talking about the Vino Nobile, without having the Brunello sent back to my face. And this is why I think that we should be very clear about it. There is no difference between one and the other. They are very good wines in both cases. And the main difference between the Brunello and the Nobile is the price. And that should be a very appealing um, selling message to American consumers and the trade for that matter. So uh, once again, Max, thank you very much for joining us. This is Steve Ray saying thank you for listening. And we'll be back next week with another edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. We hope you enjoyed today's episode brought to you by the Wine to Wine Business Forum 2022. This year will mark the ninth edition of the forum to be held on November 7th and 8th, 2022 in Verona, Italy. Remember, the second early bird discount on tickets will be available until September 18th. For more information, please visit us at winetowine.net. I'm Joy Livingston, and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love, and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.